0: If you're a fan of Pina Coladas, if you're a fan of Crush on You, if you're a fan of Baby One More Time, this episode's for you. I will deep dive into the Pina Colada guy, the large Polynesian family from Minneapolis, and that southern girl from Kentwood, Louisiana. Are there parallels between these three global superstars? We open the box and further examine the art, both performing and visual, of the original doll, Britney Spears. The Original Dow podcast will feature backgrounds to original, cover songs, videos, and performances that have played a part in the life of Britney Spears. There will be stories and interviews with people from all aspects of the entertainment industry, from songwriters, DJs, to casting agents, radio insiders, choreographers, customers, designers, and more. I created this podcast as a fan of music, and I wanted to use my Latino voice to shine the light on the arts. Many people see only a small fraction of what it takes to create a global superstar. We will deep dive behind the scenes to show how important all aspects of the arts. Many people only see a small fraction of what it takes to create a global superstar. We will deep dive behind the scenes to show many aspects of the entertainment industry, rarely heard in podcasts. We will also be doing something different. At the original Dahl, we believe in being philanthropic. On our socials and Patreon page, we will have links on how to help others. Oftentimes, the arts are the first removed from the schools because funding is cut. The goal of this podcast is to shed a light on the importance of the arts. Music is important. Dance is important. Art is important. So take your seat. Lights out. Performers in place. As we present you with the Original Dahl Podcast. Don't you want my iconography? Don't Don't you you understand? understand? Then follow me. Don't you want to aim for stars you see? Don't you want my iconography? On October 12, 1918, Leonard Elliot Goldstein was born in Nyack, New York. Leonard attended public school and excelled so much that he skipped two grades. He would ultimately graduate from Nyack High School when he was just 15 years old. Soon after, he attended Oberlin College. He was a very talented clarinet and saxophone player. When Goldstein was 17, he entered the prestigious Juilliard Conservatory of Music where he received his bachelor's degree. After he graduated, he would tour as a saxophonist. This would lead him to being featured on the magazine as the youngest professional in jazz. After Pearl Harbor, he enlisted in the Army and earned his own Infantry Division Band and the Rank of Warrant Officer. While Leonard served, he was stationed in England where he would meet Executive Assistant Gwendolyn Pine. On December 20, 1946, they were married. Their first of two sons was born on February 24, 1947. His name? David Julian Goldstein. The family eventually moved to the United States, first to Long Island, where Leonard was an executive and conductor for the National Broadcast Company, then to Rockland County, where he eventually became supervisor of music for the Nyack Public School District. David's family was poor, and his father knew if David was to attend university that he would need to do so on scholarship. Therefore, focus was put on David to learn music and play an instrument. In 1965, Goldstein attended Syracuse University with $5 in his pocket. David would be part of the College of Music. He chose it because the building looked like a Gothic cathedral. It was during his time at Syracuse that the Great Blizzard of 1966 occurred. In January of 1966, a storm was caused by low pressure front along the east coast. There would be a wind gusts close to 60 miles per hour in addition to temperatures dipping into negative 26 degrees. He stayed just one year. Because of his ability to play the clarinet, Goldstein would transfer and graduate from Manhattan School of Music as a music theory major. His love of music would evolve to piano playing and songwriting. His love for classical and pop music would mold him into a storyteller. He found joy in the idea of a song with a plot or creating a character arc with a twist. As he became a better storyteller, he would change his name from David Goldstein to Rupert Holmes. Why, you ask? Goldstein knew that he had to up his name game. He mentioned the changing of name was important for him to be successful in the entertainment industry. You had Carol Klein, who would change her name to Carol King, and Robert Zimmerman would become Bob Dylan. Before David chose Rupert as his professional name, for almost a year he was known as Julian Gill, Julian being his middle name. Now, Julian got a job at a music publisher as a mailboy slash songwriter, and he was paid $50 a week. Julian, like most creatives, wanted to evolve, he wanted to collaborate. When he wanted to leave his job, the publisher put out an ad and it basically said, Do not hire Julian Gill. He belongs to us. So what was Julian to do? Well, he disappeared. And David, who loved British names, would soon become Rupert Holmes. Holmes being a nod to Sherlock Holmes. For the sake of storytelling, I will now refer to David Goldstein as Rupert Holmes. On April 17th, 1969, Rupert would marry his childhood friend, Elizabeth Wood Dreyfus and he would continue to work nonstop for the rest of the year. Holmes worked as a session musician. He was arranging and conducting some of the last recordings of the groups The Drifters, The Platters, and even Gene Pitney, as well as top 40 pop groups such as The Cufflinks. While Holmes was trying to make a name for himself in the music industry, an engineer named Michael Wright met with Holmes. Wright said he had a group that had a deal for a single, not a full album contract, just a single contract. Wright asked Rupert how to make a successful hit. Well, Rupert's response, get banned. Make the song so that it will receive attention from being banned. It being banned from radio, then Wright could market the controversial recording for an album deal. After all, there is no such thing as bad press, correct? Rupert decided to write a song. Now, he wasn't going to write a song about sex and drugs. He needed something that could be banned, but still had mystery. He started writing a song about mining and possible cannibalism. The song would be called Timothy by the Buies. The label wanted to have the song peak higher, so they started pushing the storyline that Timothy was a mule and not a person. It would take a year for the song to hit its peak at 17 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. Where was Rupert to go next? Well, he would write TV's Partridge Family song, Echo Valley 26809, for their 1971 album, Sound Magazine. And if you listen closely, you can hear David Cassidy mimicking the voice of Rupert Holmes, as Rupert's voice was on the demo that the producers worked with. It was also in that year that Holmes considered working on a musical. He had just finished the Charles Dickens 1870 novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. However, he would ultimately put it on hold while he was preparing to release his debut album. In 1974, Holmes would release his first album. Widescreen. With the release of this album, the Village Voice called him the best songwriter of 1975. Acclaim followed his debut album, and he would eventually receive a call from Barbara Streisand. She wanted to work with Rupert on her next album. Holmes would end up arranging and conducting her 17th studio album, Lazy Afternoon, which was released in late 1975. He would further add songs to Barbara Streisand's 1976 film soundtrack, A Star is Born. In 1976, not only did it see Holmes expanding his recording industry cred, but his family as well. His wife, Liza, would give birth to a daughter named Wendy. While working on what would become his 1979 album, Partners in Crime, Rupert realized his album needed something upbeat. He started singing, People Need Other People, and he would record that. And he called it People Who Need Other People. Now, Holmes wasn't excited about it. He realized that he needed to keep changing the lyrics. So then he wrote, If you like Humphrey Bogart and getting caught in the rain. But then he realized he had too many Bogart references in his other work. So he continued to write. He decided to write, That's the law of the jungle in the school of the street. You get out of the kitchen if you can't take the heat. Then he thought, it sounds a little too much like Billy Joel. We'll put a link on our social media. While ruminating on what to do with the song, he saw a personal ad in a newspaper. He saw these ads that were people speaking highly of themselves. He wondered, if people are writing so highly of themselves, well, if they're that good, why are they single? Then he thought, what would happen to him if he put out his own personal ads and even above that holmes wondered what would happen if you found out you knew the person who responded to the ad rupert was inspired and wrote more lyrics he thought when you go on vacation or escape your daily life well what things would you do what would you drink holmes thought to himself well i wouldn't ask for a beer uh maybe something with an umbrella Uh, maybe a piña colada. Now, Holmes famously has said he'd never actually had a piña colada and didn't even know if he was pronouncing the name right. Holmes recorded it without trying to sing it first. The version you hear is his first time actually singing it. The rhythm and syllable play, that was just Holmes trying to make words fit to the music that he was going to use for the song. You see, he had already picked the musical track. He just needed to figure out what to sing on top of it. Now, as with most artists, the label had deadlines. The deadline for his album Partners in Crime was looming. The album would be released, but he needed to add an upbeat song. He would finish writing that song and would call it Escape. But people more commonly refer to it as the Pina Colada song. As the song started picking up airplay, Holmes was asked by the label, would it be okay if we... uh Changed the name just from simply escape to, uh, escape with parentheses around the piña colada song. The label and industry realized people were calling radio stations and they were asking for this piña colada song and they weren't asking for escape. So, Rupert agreed. Now, this isn't the first time a song's title was adjusted after it was produced. As a matter of fact, Britney Spears' debut single from which we now know as Baby One More Time, well, the song was initially called Hit Me Baby One More Time. And the reason for the title change to ellipses or the dot 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 Baby One More Time? Well, people thought the song was referencing physical violence. And as a matter of fact, TLC was originally sent the song, and singer T-Boz said, uh, we're not singing a song asking someone to hit us. Now, the story behind the hit part was, it was written by Swedish pop music genius Max Martin. Martin was just thinking, well, hey, if you like me, hit me up. Aside from the name change, both Baby One More Time and Escape, the Pina Colada song, have something else in common. They would both hit number one on Billboard's Hot 100 chart. Rupert Holmes' song would peak at number one before Christmas 1979, Escape was the first song, the first pop song, to ascend to number one on the Billboard pop charts in two different decades. You see, it was the last number one of 1979, and ultimately the 1970s. Then it would return to number one during the second week of 1980. It had been knocked off the top spot for a week by Casey and the Sunshine Band with their song, Please Don't Go. During the winter of 1979-1980, Rupert's label Infinity Records would be absorbed by MCA. All the people that Holmes had worked with, they had been fired. He was left with no advocates or promoters that he knew personally. In March of 1980, Rupert's second single from Partners would peak at number six on the Billboard Hot 100. The song Him would become Holmes' biggest adult contemporary hit. The follow up songs for Rupert would no longer be in the top ten on the charts. Subsequent singles, Answering Machine, well, that would peak at 32 on June 28th, 1980. Morning Man would peak at 68 in December of 1980. And his last charting song on Billboard's Hot 100, well, it would be I Don't Need You at number 56 in May of 1981. While it appeared Holmes was in the spotlight and his time was diminishing, another star was being born. On December 2nd, 1981, About eighty miles south of Jackson, Mississippi, in the small city of Macomb, a couple would be welcoming their second child. Her name? Brittany Jean Spears. No one knew it at the time, but Holmes would have written a song that would help Brittany Spears land her recording contract. In 1983, Rupert Holmes was headlining at Dangerfield's Comedy Club, playing music and telling stories. After an appearance, Rupert Holmes received a note from Joseph and Gail Papp. Gail was the director of play development at New York Shakespeare Festival. She had seen his show and loved it and wrote she loved how he could tell small stories and interesting stories in his music. The couple would end up suggesting to Holmes to write a full-length musical. Holmes decided to pick back up that idea he dropped in 1971 and would do a musical based on the incomplete novel The Mystery of Edwin Drood by Charles Dickens. Dickens had passed while having only completed half of the novel. Rupert would turn this novel into a murder mystery musical and would feature a sort of choose-your-own-adventure aspect. You see, the audience could decide who the murderer was in the musical. After only three weeks of rehearsal, the original production of The Mystery of Edwin Drood premiered in New York City's Central Park at the Delacorte Theater on August 21, 1985. Drood transferred and opened on Broadway at the Imperial Theater on December second, 1985. Holmes would go from the general masses knowing him as the Piña Colada singer to theater people knowing him as the first person in theatrical history to solely win Tony Awards for Best Picture, Best Lyrics, and Best Book of a Musical. The show would also win a Tony Award for Best Musical. How was Holmes to follow this up? While working on Drood, Rupert was contacted about writing a song for a new group. Much like his partner's album, there was this group whose debut album, it was missing something. It was missing a song that would help round out the album. The group needed a ballad. That group was the Jets. The Jets were comprised of eight brothers and sisters from the Wolfgram family. The Polynesian Americans were based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The Wolfgrims, who are practicing Mormons, would eventually expand to 19 family members. The band's age ranges, well, they were from 12 years old to 20 years old. After some time looking for a manager, they connected with Don Powell. He was the former manager of Stevie Wonder and co-manager of David Bowie. Powell had retired from the entertainment industry and began to help his family's successful car dealership in Minneapolis. The Jets had been given the name by their father. Initially, they were called Quasar. Now, Don Powell changed that name. He changed it to The Jets as a nod to Benny and the Jets. In 1983, The Jets got signed to MCA Records for a multi-album deal. MCA also happened to be the same label that Rupert Holmes was signed to. When Rupert was asked to contribute a ballad, He rightfully asked about the singers. He wanted to know more information about the band. He was told that the sibling that would be doing the lead vocals on the ballad would be Elizabeth. And she was born in 1972, which would make her about 13 years old at the time of the recording. Holmes wondered, how am I going to tell a story through the eyes of a young girl? A few years back, Holmes was interviewed by Carl Weiser for Song Facts. Holmes said, I thought writing would be tough because some of my lyrics used to be about some pretty strange characters. I thought it would be a challenge. See, if I I can write a song, a love song, that sounds appropriate, sung by a 14-year-old girl. Well, and this was all before we had all the Britneys, the Mandy Moores, and all these teen stars. I purposefully tried to write a very clear, simple, unaffected lyric that would have a little lilt to it. That would be a positive song for a young girl getting over her first heartbreak letting her know that this boy that she just lost, well, he was not going to be the only boy she'd ever have as a boyfriend. I also wrote the song thinking about my daughter, Wendy, who was about 10 at the time. I thought maybe it would be a song she could enjoy and it would be fun to hear her with her friends and and say, my father wrote that. So I wrote it that way and they recorded it. Now it was working with Elizabeth. Well, how do you get a 12-year-old to convey feelings about a lost love. She was just a teenager who didn't have much dating experience. Her manager, Don Powell, told her, act as if she just lost a puppy. Act like you have a new puppy and it died. Morbid? Yes. Did it work? Yes. Elizabeth would record, You Got It All, and the album would be completed. Now, the Jets would release their self-titled debut album on October 14th, 1985. The album would feature songs written and produced by Aaron Zygman and Jerry Wright, with the cover of vocal group Delphonic's 1968 song, La La Means I Love You, included in the mix. The label was trying to market the Jets to as many genre stations as possible. They did not feature the band on the cover art for their debut single, Curiosity. MCA wanted the listener to connect with their voice and not their image. It worked. The song charted on Billboard's dance music charts and peaked at number 8 on Billboard Hot Black Singles chart. Yes, that was the actual name of the chart in the 80s. The Jets' debut album would peak at number 21 on July 19, 1986 on the Billboard Top 200 charts and would stay on the charts for 70 weeks. Elizabeth would also be the lead vocalist on the other hits, including Crush on You, which peaked at number three on June 21st, 1986, and that would go on staying on the chart for 20 weeks. On our website, we will have playlists with all the songs that we mentioned during the original Doll podcast. Makes it easier so that you can enjoy the songs as well. The Rupert Holmes ballad, You Got It All, was released in August of 1986 and would peak at number three. On the Billboard Hot 100 charts. The song would stay on the chart for 26 weeks. In 1986, while the Wolfgram family was flying high, the Holmes family they would be dealing with the death of their 10-year-old daughter Wendy. She died from an undiscovered brain tumor. While dealing with the trauma of losing a child, Liza was pregnant with their second child. Rupert told interviewer Carl Weiser, I don't really recall anything that happened around the time You Got It All was a hit, because it took me two years to come out of the shock and be able to do things like work. I did things that I had to do, like supervise the London production of The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and things that I knew had to do, well, I had to do them almost on autopilot. It was wonderful to have a hit, but it was a terrible time in my life. It was heartbreak for me because it's the song that my daughter never got to hear as a hit record. I think she would have really liked it because she could hear herself in the song. Maybe there are other 10 year old girls that heard it and liked it. In November of 1986, the Jets released a Christmas album simply called Christmas with the Jets. Eventually one of the siblings, Eugene, would leave the group to become the music duo known as Boys Club. And who put Boys Club together? Don Powell, the Jets' manager. The duo would be referred to as Minneapolis' version of Wham! And they even had a number 8 hit on the Billboard Hot 100 with their track I Remember Holding You, which was released in 1989. For the follow-up to the Christmas album, manager Don Powell chose not to utilize the original producers and songwriting team who helped on the Jets' debut album. Powell wanted more control. Producer Aaron Zygmunt believes he was an asked back because Powell wanted more control. Don would eventually write and produce songs on the album. Leroy Wolfgrim told TV1, Don and the Jets listened to over a thousand songs just to come up with ten that would be included on the 1987 album Magic. The album would see the release of charting hits such as The Adult Contemporary Number One, Make It Real, Rock It To You, Cross My Broken Heart, I Do You the number one dance chart hit, Sending All My Love, and Anytime, which happened to be written by Rupert Holmes. During all of the Jets' touring and record sales, the Wolfgram family felt that they were not receiving what they believed they should be, financially speaking. By 1989, they were still living in a rented house. The family began asking, where is the money? Some say it was mishandled by Don Powell, who was their manager, and also the head of the production company that worked for them. The Wolfgram family trusted him, so they never really thought to ask about the money until it was gone. The president of MCA at the time, Ernie Singleton, he told the group to avoid firing their manager, because they would eventually need an advocate to deal with the label. And That's what Don did. By the time the Jets' 1989 album Believe came out to radio, well... Radio music tastes were changing. R&B was slipping away, and in its place, rap and New Jack Swing. The album didn't even make it inside the top 100 and Billboard's top 200. New Jack Swing heavily influenced Bobby Brown's sophomore album Don't Be Cruel, which had five singles receiving tremendous airplay during 1988 and 1989. All five singles released from the album reached the top 10 on Billboard Hot 100. Brown's second single, My Prerogative, turned out to be Bobby Brown's first number one on Billboard Hot 100 and would end up being Billboard's second biggest-selling single of 1989. The album, Don't Be Cruel, would go on to sell 12 million copies worldwide. What did the Jets do as a response to the changing music scene? They released a Greatest Hits album, one year after 1989's Believe. In the previous episode, I discussed how some artists release Christmas or Greatest Hits albums to fulfill an album obligation to the record label. Sometimes, like in the case with The Best of the Jets, the label pushes out Greatest Hits to keep the artist in the spotlight. Jive Records did it in 2004 when they released Britney Spears' My Prerogative Greatest Hits. You see, On June 28, 2004, Britney Spears was filming a video for her forthcoming single, Outrageous. During filming, which you can find the videos online, Britney Spears falls during the dance routine and is carried off the set. She was taken to the hospital and underwent surgery. The label still decided to release the single to U.S. Radio on July twentieth. Less than a month after that, on August 13th, Jive Records stated that Britney Spears was going to release a Greatest Hits album, with the first single being released in September and the album released in November. Britney Spears' cover of My Prerogative was the lead single off My Prerogative Greatest Hits. The album would sell over 6 million copies worldwide and would keep her in the spotlight. Now, not everyone is lucky. Back in 1991, The Jets' record label, MCA, tried to change their image and and to get them to sound more hip-hop. It didn't work. The album, well, it was scrapped. The best of would be the last with the Jets on their label. When the group got rid of their manager, Powell, the record label was going through a financial crisis. They needed to remove $20 million of expenses to stay afloat. The label would then start picking artists off their roster and dropping them. There was no one there to speak on behalf to MCA, so the Jets were dropped. But the Jets continued to tour. It was during a stop on their USO tour that they read in a newspaper that they were bankrupt. That's how they found out. Through a newspaper. Now The Jets allegedly made over $10 million during their five-year career and had nothing to show for it, financially speaking. The irony is that these artists were young children who were very talented and mature in their sound, but the truth of the matter is, their naivete played a part in their financial downfall. How were they to know where their money was coming from and, and who was being paid? Their manager controlled the finances and their family believed in him. The family went from poor to a successful recording group to poor again, never actually reaching that rich status. Problems with managers and finances, there's something that's played out the part in the careers of many global superstars, one being the original doll, Britney Spears. Starting out so young, not knowing what is going on behind the scenes, all of your choices are decided on by an adult or a group of adults. Hopefully, an artist has someone who they can trust. The trust between a manager and an artist is in my mind, almost as important as the talent of the artists themselves. You can be the most vocally talented person in the world, but without the backing of a manager or an advocate, how far can you go? Rupert Holmes had this issue with this label. They fired his whole team, the team who supported him and promoted him at his original label, They were fired while his song, Escape, was going number one. The Jets had their issues with their manager and their label. Britney Spears would have her issues with her label and some managers throughout her career. Back in 1992, Ruthless the Musical premiered off-Broadway at the Players Theater. It was an all-female musical that spoofed musicals like Gypsy, while at the same time spoofing films like The Bad Seed. The main role of Tina was played by Laura Bell Bundy. Bundy would go on to appear on Broadway in the original cast of the musicals Hairspray, and she would play Al Woods in Legally Blonde, the musical. Britney Spears would play Bundy's understudy. This also wouldn't be the last Britney-Bundy connection. Spears was living in New York City with her mom when she decided to leave the musical around Christmas 1992. She wanted to return home. The next understudy? For Laura Bell Bundy, that would be a young girl named Natalie Herschlaug, who, much like David Goldstein, would go through a name change. She would eventually be Natalie Portman. Now let's fast forward to 1997. The co-founder of Zamba Music Group, Clive Calder, would eventually sign Britney Spears to a recording contract with a get-out clause. Calder saw Spears as having potential to be the next Robin, a Swedish pop star who had seen American success in 1996 and 1997 with Do You Know What It Takes and Show Me Love. Britney Spears' contract stipulated that Jive Records could cancel the deal in 90 days with no further commitment if a decided the album wasn't going to work. Steve Lunt was designated as her a person. Lunt would help develop Britney Spears and be the liaison between her and the label. Ultimately, he would be her advocate. Because Jive was still a predominantly rap and R&B label, almost all of their in-house songsmiths were rap and R&B songwriters. At the time of Britney's signing, some of her label mates were A Tribe Called Quest, R. Kelly, and Aaliyah. The label just had one pop producer, Eric Foster White. He was signed to Zamba, Calder's publishing company. Lunt and Foster went to New Jersey to work on Britney's sound. Britney had initially envisioned herself doing Cheryl Crow music, but for a younger crowd. Lunt and White pushed Britney towards a teen pop direction, which Britney liked because she could dance to it. They recorded a handful of original songs together, From the Bottom of My Broken Heart and Soda Pop. Those were just two of them. The label heard it, and they didn't feel that they had any hits. So then, Lunt recommended that Britney cover the hit song, You Got It All by the Jets. It was an innocent ballad that a young girl could sing. They recorded a demo of it, which you can find online. Clive Calder heard the demo, and he decided to pick up the option of creating an album. Britney would perform the song Live in Asia in the spring of 1998. The setlist would also include Baby One More Time and Sometimes. You can see the video online of Spears singing along to a backing track. Even though the song was recorded before her debut album, it would not be released until a special edition of her sophomore album, Oops I Did It Again, was released in certain countries in 2000. I reached out to Rupert Holmes. I asked him what he thought about Britney Spears covering the song. I received a response via his associate. Rupert did not know Britney was covering his song until after it was released. He was so delighted that she did her own That's So Britney vocalization and was pleased she did so much with that song. Fast forward to a few years later. Spears would be considered by many as the Princess of Pop. Just a couple months before Britney Spears would be singing Slave for You and dancing with an albino Burmese python named Banana at the MTV Video Music Awards, director Roger Cumble was in production for his film called The Sweetest Thing. The film would star Cameron Diaz, Christina Applegate, and Selma Blair. Cumble had found success in 1999 when he wrote and directed the film Cruel Intentions. Christina Applegate, who played the ditzy blonde Kelly Bundy on the hit television show Married with Children, in 2005 she would star in the revival of the musical Sweet Charity, and there was hopes that it would be Broadway bound. The previews began in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the home of the group the Jets. When the music musical did transfer to Broadway, there were people that reported that Britney Spears would be replacing Christina Applegate when her contract ended. Which would mean that Britney would be taking over for another Bundy. The first being Ruthless' Laura Bell Bundy, and now taking over for Kelly Bundy. Sadly, this never came to fruition. Now back to Cumble. In a scene outside of a car in the film, The director initially envisioned Diaz and Applegate singing an updated and an inappropriate version of Escape, the Piña Colada song. The producers wanted to change the words to Penis Colossus. To change the lyrics, they would need approval from the songwriter, Rupert Holmes. Holmes was contacted. He said, if you want to change the lyrics, here is the amount, which would basically pay for his son to go to college. The producers were already going to use the song in the background, so they would be paying for that part. But to change the lyrics, that would be a premium price. Holmes thought at the end of the day, that change, well, that could ruin the publishing for my song for the rest of my life. People would sing that version of the song instead of the original. As you recall in our Dolly Parton episode of the original doll, publishing is very important. Rupert Holmes wanted an amount that would cover his son's tuition. He figured if escape became a joke, at least his son's degree would be paid for. In the recording industry, a songwriter might, they might hear that their song is going to be used, their original recording, or they might not. Depends on the label, the publisher, the artist. Altering the lyrics, that is one reason why songwriters will be consulted. On The Sweetest Thing DVD audio commentary, it was stated by Cumble, the director, that the amount to change the lyrics, that it was $100,000. The studio chose not to pay it. Holmes did receive payment for a win they used his original song in the background. So now you may ask, what happened to the Jets? In 2010, the Wolfgram family had two variations of the Jets. The original Jets split up. One side was Leroy and Rudy leading the band, and the other side would feature Elizabeth and Moana leading their band. At the advice of the Wolfram parents, Leroy and Rudy? They basically sued their sisters, claiming that they were not the Jets, that Leroy and Rudy's group was the Jets. A family divided. Lawsuits. Court orders. Rupert Holmes, the Jets and Britney Spears would all see success and go through professional highs and personal lows. They persevered. All of these individuals are creatives. In interviews, you can hear each discuss their love of music, their love of the art. All of these individuals started out so young. They all had their first experience with success while they were still teens. And their families all played a huge part in their success early on. On our socials, we're going to share a link where you can hear all three different versions of You Got It All. You can hear how each song is done a little bit differently. From Elizabeth, to Britney, to Rupert. As I come to the end of this episode, I wanted to share a little quote. And for those who are fans of Britney Spears and have followed her career, this one may hit close to home. Elizabeth Wolfgrim said on TV special Unsung, what we need now is to bring back the family first. It got lost. It got sacrificed for success. That's what would bring them all back if we were a family first and not the business. Be for playlists to the official songs, please visit theoriginaldoll.com. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and like our episodes. Until next time. The purpose of this podcast is to highlight the arts, both performance and visual, and utilizing Britney Spears as the connector. In the coming episodes, we will feature background to songs, videos, performances that have all played a part in the life of Britney Spears. I have interviewed and will interview more songwriters, DJs, producers, choreographers, dancers, people in the film industry, people in the television industry, people in the music industry, with the hopes of shedding light on the different parts that are needed to create a pop star, the parts that are needed to create a legacy, and all of these parts created the original doll, Britney Spears. Visit us at TheOriginalDoll.com or on Insta, the.original.doll, or message me on Twitter at James Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z. Until next time.